Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we have just sung of a wondrous truth that you are the eternal King. Father, kingdoms may rise and fall in this world. Wicked rulers may, as we read in the Psalms, gnash their teeth against your kingdom and your rule. But it changes not one bit the fact that you are King eternal. And Father, as we have just sung, we want You to lead. And so for Your leadership in our lives, it requires submissive following on our part. And Lord, we confess that as we look back at this past week, Lord, there have been many times where we have not followed in Your light, where the cross has not been brought over all our actions. And so, Father, we come before You and we confess our sins. We confess our failure to recognize You as the King that You are. But we hope, Father, in the wonderful truth that if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. That, Father, because of what Christ has done, we who are banished from Your courts are now called to boldly come into Your presence and to approach the throne of God. So, Father, we have sung that You are the King eternal. Father, as You take Your Word today, may You be sovereign over our hearts. May we, by Your grace and the Spirit's work within us, willingly bow our knees to anything that You point out in our lives that needs to be shed so that we would follow You more today. Father, thank You for the victory we have through Christ and Your eternal, enduring kingdom. Work in our hearts today as only You can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And uh, Lord willing, we will make it through all six verses, and I know if you've been here for any time, you're sort of like, yeah, right, we'll see how that goes. So we just finished looking at chapter 3, and at the end of chapter 3, Peter speaks of the victory that Christ has won, that He has brought us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, how He has gone into heaven, the last verse of Chapter 3, and is there at the right hand of God, angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. 
And so we see Peter ending in chapter 3 this great crescendo of the victory that Christ has won. So, as we see naturally throughout all of the New Testament, doctrine gives way to what we call praxis, or how we're to practice these truths in our lives. And this is what Peter points us to now as we come to chapter 4. Look with me, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of, and what's that next word? Thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. I think as we, if we were to be honest in our walk with the Lord, in the path that we have to walk as a pilgrim, I think all of us could honestly say that there have been times in our lives, and perhaps for you, you're dealing with this even now, where you struggle with what we call persistent sins or besetting sins. Sins that we tend to fall into constantly, and we can't ever seem to get victory over them. They, they may be sins of habit. They may be sins in, in our thought lives. They may be sins that, that we just can't seem to stay away from. How can we get victory over what we call besetting sins? And while Peter here is not necessarily focusing on besetting sins, the principles that he gives us are exactly what we need so that we can have victory over sins that we struggle with on a constant basis. See, Peter is recognizing that even as pilgrims, even as those who have been called out from the world and have, have accepted the glorious hope of Christ and been born again by His grace, even we struggle with temptation. We are often tempted and we find ourselves failing. And maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching online this morning and you look at this past week, you look at even the past several weeks or months and all you see is destruction and devastation in your spiritual life as you seem to be losing the spiritual battle. Well, Peter focuses us here in these verses and he shows us the pilgrim's path of victory. How can we have victory over the sins that we struggle with on a daily basis? And it's not complicated. It's not, as they say, rocket surgery. It's simple. 
Look to Christ. The very message of the gospel that calls us to hope in the victory that Christ has won, it also calls us to now live that victory out in our struggle against sin. And so there are three things I'd like us to consider this morning regarding how we can walk the path of victory as pilgrims in this world. And so we see, first of all, the mindset of the path of victory. Now, as I mentioned, the opening verses of chapter 4, these first six verses of chapter 4, are connected to the thoughts at the end of chapter 3. And we see in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4, since, therefore, and you've probably heard me say it, you've probably heard other people say it, when you come across a therefore in the Scriptures, you're to look to see what it's there for. And it serves a, the purpose of connecting um, literary units or thoughts Together And so, based on the fact, specifically in verse 22, that Christ has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, that everything has been subjected to Him, since He has suffered in the flesh, we then need to arm ourselves with, and then here's the key, the same way of thinking. Peter points us to the wonderful truths In verse 18 through the end of chapter 3 of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, how God displayed that in mercy through saving Noah and his family, how baptism is an evidence of an inward spiritual reality within us, and that we have union with Christ's death and resurrection, and then Christ's preeminence being sort of the climax of all of that. So now, these great truths should drive us to prepare the way that we think. He now turns to the so what of the everyday do- of the doctrines that he spoke of at the end of chapter 3. So we prepare ourselves. And we prepare ourselves with a prepared mindset. Notice what he says here. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So this is the main command of chapter or verse 1 of chapter 4. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Now this term arm takes sort of a very natural sort of military idea about it, but the underlying Greek word sort of doesn't have that necessarily. It's just describes the idea of being prepared, making a full preparation. And we see that this same idea is of arming yourself for Battle and arming yourself for victory is what we see throughout the Scriptures. And so this arming comes through recognizing the victory that Christ has won. We see Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Before us to be able to stand in the battle that we are going to face, we first must arm ourselves. We must take up the armor of God. We must prepare ourselves. I think so often we approach the Christian life haphazardly. You know, well, we think that, that if we just spend a little bit of time in God's Word, sort of checking off the box that we did our devotions, rather than truly seeking to understand and let God's Word permeate us and change us, then it's no wonder that as we go about our day, we fail. We fall into temptation because we're not ready. And this is what Peter is calling us to recognize. 
But he also is calling us to look back at the suffering of Christ, um, arming ourselves with the same way of thinking. And what has Christ's suffering accomplished? Victory. Is Christ risen from the dead? Yes. Amen. And so, having ascended into heaven, having been set at the right hand of the Father, there is no question in this universe whether or not Christ is at this moment victorious. He is. So now, let our thinking come and be affected by that idea. See, the battle that we have as a spiritual battle is different than what we think of particularly regarding human conflicts. You know, you think about a battle that we're fighting and, we're, and, and we think about battles we want to fight to win. Well, here's the thing. We've already won. In Christ, we have already won. We are victorious. So, what's the problem then? Why do we keep struggling with sin? And the answer is because we don't think that we are victorious. We don't reckon what Christ has done to significantly impact the everyday life we live. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, we who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ will reconcile? Is that what he says? Is it a future thing? Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his what? His death. His suffering is the means by which we are reconciled to God so that he can present us holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father in heaven. So as Peter points us to this arming ourselves with the same way of thinking, that thinking is Christ has won and given us victory over sin. In fact, in the great spiritual battle that we, that we fight, before we came to know the love and the grace of Christ, who was our enemy? What does it say here? Who was our enemy? It was God Himself. But Christ has wrought victory for us by breaking down the wall of separation, by bringing us to God so that now we can be accepted in His presence. We are no longer enemies. We are members of the household of God. That is our great hope. And through Christ's death, He has delivered us through from this enmity with God and set us to have victory. God is no longer our enemy. He is now our ally in the spiritual warfare that we fight. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, we are to be strong where? In the Lord. And in whose strength of his might? In his strength. So when, when Peter calls us to look at the suffering of Christ, to arm ourselves with the, way, the same way of thinking, we recognize and we think about the fact that we, that Christ has given us victory over sin. But this is where we see then, secondly, a renewed mind be necessary. We're prepared to focus on the victory of Christ. He suffered in the flesh. He brought us to God through his death in the flesh. So we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. 
What area of our life is to be prepared when we face the battles and the temptations of life? It begins in our thinking. Our mindset must be prepared for battle against sin. You know, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but you, you ever see a, a kid who goes out to a, to a you know, a, a ball game, like a young kid, and you know, he's maybe learning to play baseball or whatever, and he sits down in the outfield and he starts plucking up grass, you know, and it's, or he's running around. You know, like, it's, it's always funny to see young kids when they're first learning baseball. Like, some of, the, some of the defenders will start running the bases, you know, stuff like that. They just don't know what they're doing. And so the coach will yell out to him, get your what in the game? Get your head in the game. And that same principle is what Peter is calling us to. Arm yourselves in your thinking. How we think will affect how we act. And so I I think it would be a good exercise for us as we wake up in the morning, as we begin our days, what are we thinking about? Are we preparing our minds for the battle that we're going to face that day? Or are we thinking about all sorts of other ancillary things? Our victory over sin in this life begins in the way we think about sin itself. This is exactly what Paul is getting at in Romans 12. We're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to be acceptable to God. This is a spiritual act of worship. We're not conformed to this world. So how do we ensure that we aren't molded into the same form of the world? We do it because we're transformed totally by the renewal of our what? Our minds. Our thinking has to be changed. So so what is this thinking then? What particularly about sin do we recognize when we consider how Christ suffered in the flesh? And it's what we looked at the last couple weeks. It's what Paul points out in Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Christ died to what? Sin. So what? that's the doctrine. So how does that affect our thinking? We must consider, or to use an old King James term, reckon. It speaks to the operation of our what? Our minds. We must think about ourselves that we are, what is our relationship to sin? We are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are dead to sin. Sin no longer has power over us. Praise the Lord. We are victorious. But here's the thing. As we mentioned, we still struggle with sin. We still fall into sin. Where does that failure begin? It begins in us not thinking that sin is dead to us. In fact, sin only has power now if we give it power in our thinking. If our thinking is not set on sin's deadness, but instead we give it life through the thinking that we have, then we will fall to it. This is how temptation works. It begins with a wrong way of thinking. Adam and Eve, there's this this fruit that's forbidden to her. 
And you know what she starts doing? She starts thinking about that fruit. It looks good. It's, it's going to make me wise. It's a delight to my eyes. And her thoughts should have never gone there. Sin began its seminal work in the hearts of mankind through the way they thought about sin. So we must prepare our minds for action. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And this is what Peter has already called us to in his letter. Notice what he says in 1 Peter 1. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as we get up every morning, if we're going to walk the path of victory that pilgrims have been called to walk, it begins with a prepared mindset. So now, now that we've prepared, what does that look like? What does this prepared mindset look like? And we see this in verse 2. So we've, we've suffered, um, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That is focusing on Christ's suffering in the flesh. And so it, it's a connection between Christ has killed sin in his flesh, so we have ceased from sin to have life in us by virtue of our union with Christ. So what does that look like? Look at verse 2. So, as a result of this, we're to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We first of all have to purpose in our minds that we will reject human passions. We are purposed in our thinking against sin. The purpose of our lives is radically altered. Before, we lived for ourselves, didn't we? We lived for ourselves. Now, we have new life in the resurrection of Christ. And so we no longer live for, and here's what Peter uses the term. He uses the term human passions. It's interesting, this term that he uses, human passions. We, I think, particularly as you, as you understand New Testament writings and different things, that we would expect him to use the term fleshly passions. That's a term that you see elsewhere, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments because he does talk about that. But his use of the term human, I think, is something we should pay attention to and listen to because essentially what he's saying is he speaking of these passions as being something that is common to humanity. Something common to all humanity. In fact, the implication is is that to be human is to have these type of passions. Now, this is not what we were created for. In God's design, to be human is to reflect His image. But when sin entered the world, now to be human is to live for human passions. To go our own ways. The normal way of life for humanity, apart from God's grace, is indulgence in the things that we desire that are against the Lord. That's how the world lives. And I think 
Peter is also sort of setting expectations. In fact, he's going to talk about this in just a few minutes and as the world is like, well, why aren't you doing what we're doing? This is, this is the way of life as an unbeliever, human passions. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and being dead in our trespasses and sins, what did we do? We walked. We were, in one sense, spiritual zombies. Walking in deadness, following what? The pattern or the course of this world. Following this world follows who? Who's the leader of this world? The prince of the power of the air. The devil. The minute Eve started listening and thinking the way Satan was, listen, was calling her to think, then that, and Adam went with her, then that plunged all of humanity into following the devil wholesale. He's a spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, notice who Peter, again, is writing this book to. It's written to strangers, to exiles, to pilgrims. So we don't belong in this world. So that also means then that our passions are not going to be formed by the same things that this world is formable for. We're different from the world. We do not live our lives the, the same way the rest of the world, the rest of humanity lives. Now this should be convicting. Because if we examine our lives honestly, how often do we live lives like the world? How often do we, in our thinking, which then affects the way we act, go after the world's ways? Now, our mindset, which is prepared through the victory that Christ has won, needs to be purposed to first reject human passions. And then we are purposed to submit to God's will. Notice again what he says in verse 2. We determine to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Isaiah 53 talks about all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to whose way? Our own way. That's human passions. But now, Peter says pilgrims are not like straying sheep. Rather, they seek to live their lives in submission to the good shepherd. Through Christ's death to sin, we now have new desires that now affect the way we think. And so we think and purpose that we will live our lives for the sake of fulfilling God's will. Notice again what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world. All right? Cast off human passions. Be transformed as our minds are renewed so that by testing we may discern what? What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect. 
This is what Paul, Paul and Peter are saying the same thing. It's almost like the same guy wrote Peter and First Peter in Romans. And it was, it was the Holy Spirit. So how do we respond when tempted? Look, tomorrow, even this afternoon, you're going to be tempted. Are you prepared? Are you prepared with a mind that focuses on what Christ has accomplished? And are you prepared to purpose in your lives that you're going to reject? You are going to reject those passions, and rather you're going to submit your life to the will of God. So what does this look like now? What is the manner of this path of victory that we're called to walk? How do we live this out? We've prepared our minds. Now what does this look like? Well, it begins by doing what Peter already told us to do. Reject fleshly desires. It's, it's interesting here how much he puts an emphasis on two aspects of the human life. Our thinking and our desires. What we love and what we meditate on. And naturally, what we love is going to be the thing that is what we're going to meditate on. So our desires have to come into submission to God's will. And so this is what he says in verse 3. The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. But he tells us that we are to turn away from sinful actions. It's interesting how Peter uses the term Gentiles. And it is an indication of the spiritual difference between God's people and the rest of the world. We are the called out ones. Just as Israel was called out from the Gentile nations. And Israel was given a way of living that was completely different than the nations around them. So is it any different for us today as God's people? No. We're not to live like the Gentiles. That time is past. And how do the Gentiles live? Well, they live through self-indulgence. So we need to reject self-indulgence. Look at verse 3. The time is past, uh, that's, uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality and passions. Sensuality and passions. Peter strikes at the first major difference between God's people and the world, and it begins in what we want. What we want. Peter speaks first of these two words, sensuality and passion. Sensuality, or if you're reading in the King James, this is, an old, this is another one of my favorite King James words, lasciviousness. You can say that five times fast. I had, a, I had a, a, a teacher in high school, I went to a Christian school, and every time he would say lasciviousness, he would fumble over it, and then he would say, well, somebody else read the verse, so... This term refers to a lack of self-constraint. It's generally used in literature outside of the New Testament to refer to people who indulge in behavior that was beyond the bounds of societal acceptance. But Peter here takes it and he says, look, this is, our acceptance is not formed by the world's sense of acceptance, right? 
If, if we seek to live according to the world's moral compass, then we're no different than the world. So the believer's moral conference, co- co- uh, co- compass is different. And so we are to put aside anything that goes against, and what we saw in verse 2, the will of God. Lasciviousness is anything that turns away and says, I'm going to indulge my desires with reckless abandon to what God has said. Now, this involves sinful actions. It involves sexual sins. It involves um, any number of drunkenness and and partying and the things that he's going to talk about here in in a moment he's going to get specific about. But you know what else it also includes? It includes self-righteousness. It includes looking to ourselves as the, as the best thing that's here on this earth. It includes idolatry. Lasciviousness is anything that acts outside the will of God. And Peter is saying the time is past for those things. Put it off. We need to put off those desires. We need to put off those passions. In fact, the word passions that's used there is the same word that he talks about regarding human passions. We are called in our desires to be fundamentally different than the world around us. And see, this is where sin begins. Look at what James says. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own what? Desire, his own passions. And when he gives in to those passions, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, what does sin bring? The wages of sin is death. See, if we were to start with the thinking that sin is dead, that we don't have anything to do with it, that we are dead to it through what Christ has accomplished on the cross, then our passions will line up and we'll begin to desire the things that accord with the new life we have in Christ. That's the the way our thinking affects what we desire. But if we don't start with that way of thinking, then we begin to let our passions draw us aside, entice us, lure us away. So we have to reject self indulgence. Listen, I I think one thing that the Scriptures bear out is that while there are external difficulties that we face as believers, the more insipid and perhaps dangerous enemy of the Christian life is our own self. Our own passions. But when we give in to self-indulgence, it leads to uncontrolled indulgence. We see Peter pointing out normal ways of acting in the first century. He talks about drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties. This is the natural course of those who give in to their own passions. It leads to all manner of debauchery. Drunkenness, of course, we know what this refers to. It refers to consuming so much alcohol that a person has lost control of, their, of themselves. Now, let, let us be very clear. 
The Bible condemns drunkenness. It's, it's black and white. Now, we live in a culture that loves drunkenness. Western Pennsylvania is, Pittsburgh is a drinking town. For the Christian, for the believer, we, we don't belong in that environment, right? So we turn away from drunkenness. And really, I think that this term would apply to any substance that we abuse for the sake of losing control. So we can put illicit drugs, even prescription drugs used in such a way as to bring us to this point. Drunkenness would often be involved in what we see secondly, um, orgies. The term here that is used here, it's a Greek word called komos or kamos, and it was the final act of the celebration of, uh, and I'm going to pronounce this rice wrong. <laughs> I'm going to pronounce this rice. I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Dionysus. I think that's close. All right? it was, he was, uh, or she was a god of fertility, a god of wine, a god of ecstasy. And in a, a, a great sinful act of worship to this God, there would be parades, there would be acts that would be played off, and then the whole thing would end with the kamos, the word that he uses here. It was a final act of celebration to the God of fertility and ecstasy, and you can only imagine what was involved in that, openly in the streets of the cities of Rome. Every imaginable wickedness was going on. In fact, it's interesting, Peter writes to the believers in Galatia. Galatia was known for a festal celebration to another god named Sibyl, and it would involve wild orgies and hideous mutilations. And as I was reading one commentary, they had a description from one of the, one of the Greek historians, and it was so vile, I couldn't even put it in my sermon notes, the stuff that was going on. And then he ends by speaking of drinking parties. This refers to times that are specifically set aside for getting drunk. It's often referred to as carousing. Now, here we are at Bible Baptist Church on a Sunday morning, and you would think, well, these, these type of things, you know, we, we stay away from them as Christians, and right we should, but listen, this is the culture that we have in western Pennsylvania. You want to see these three things, or drunkenness, orgies, and drinking parties, just go down to the south side on a Friday night. This is the culture we live in. It's not that much different. In fact, I don't know if, if you saw in the news recently, but there were two clubs on the south side that were shut down because of the despicable things that were going on and videoed and put on Snapchat and TikTok for all the world to see. And they said, this is Pittsburgh. This is the, way, the place we live now, the question that Peter is charging us with here as pilgrims, are you done with those things? He's calling us to walk differently. 
He's challenging us to live a life that recognizes that those things, we are dead to them in Jesus Christ. And then finally, he calls us to reject idolatry. He says, these things, we living sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Here's the thing. When we indulge our selfish desires, when we go after our passions, ultimately, who are we worshiping? Not God. Who are we worshiping? Ourselves. When we boil it all down, the things that we desire are an indication of what we worship. Now, listen, you may not desire to go downtown and be involved in the debauchery that goes on on Friday nights on Carson Street. But do you desire God above everything else? If you don't, you have an idol. And so... Peter is is reminding the believers who likely are not engaging in these things that we need to let the Spirit probe deeply with His Word to root out the idols in our own lives and to cast them off. Our greatest source of joy, our greatest delight, the thing we are to be passionate about is Jesus Christ alone. We've been freed from uncontrolled, self-indulgent idolatry. This is the quintessential attribute of a pilgrim. We don't worship what the world worships. We only want Christ and we only want Him and we want more and more and more of Him. We can't get enough. As Paul says in Philippians 3, He counts Everything that he had before, which included acts of amazing righteousness in his own efforts. He counts it loss because he recognizes that there is something that is far more surpassing in worth. What is it? Knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. And so he counts everything else as dung for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ that he would know him, the power of his resurrection, that he would share in his sufferings, becoming likened in, in his death, that by any means possible he might attain the resurrection of the dead. This is what it means to be a pilgrim. And then finally, and quickly, we're going to look at the manner the, the, the final point we see about, or we're to reject fleshly di- desires, and then secondly, we're to refuse worldly acceptance. Now, here's where the, we look at the things that go on on Carson Street on a Friday night, and we say, I don't want anything to do with that. Friday morning comes along. You go, your coworker comes to you at your desk or in your cubicle or whatever. Someone that you work with closely says, hey, a bunch of us are going down to the south side Friday. It's going to be a team-building thing. We want you to come along with us. 
What are you going to do? I mean, you want to fit in, right? This is the place you work. This is the place where you probably spend maybe more time there than even with your family at times. A pilgrim is always a pilgrim. So we need to reject worldly acceptance. Look at verse 4. So with respect to this, with respect to these sinful actions, the world is what? They're surprised. They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. What do you you mean you don't drink? What do you mean you you don't want to go out with us to, to, to this place? Why would you not do that? See, and this is, this is an, an, an evidence of human passions. Everyone else in the world, they look and they think, well, this is what everyone does. This is normal. This is what we do in Western PA. And we have to recognize that we have to refuse to belong to this world. They are surprised that we don't go with them. They won't and they can't understand our way of life. I, I, it struck me when I moved back up to Pittsburgh, still wasn't finished with my degree, but I realized we needed to move and, and to get involved in ministry. Moved up here and I had to get a, a secular job. And so I worked at a company. And this company would generally hire people either straight out of high school or right out of college. And as we all know, kids, adolescents, straight out of high school and, and even just straight out of college, they are the most fine, upstanding citizens of this world, right? And so there was a constant pressure to go out with them on Friday nights. It was out in, in Moon Township, and they would go to this bar. I, I remember, I think, Three Brothers Bar or whatever. It's not there anymore. And that's, that's what they did. And it was nearly every week are you coming out with us? No, I'm not coming out with you. Are you coming out with No, I'm not coming out with you. I've heard other people talk about how people they work with will, will specifically try to get them to curse because they want them to be like them. The world doesn't understand. And so the pressure is intense. Listen, growing up, we talked about peer pressure, and of course it was peer pressure to turn away from drugs and stuff. Listen, Christian, there is intense peer pressure from this world. They want you to fit in. But we have to refuse to belong. We, ex- we count acceptance before God greater than acceptance before the world. Notice what the psalmist says. Who is it that makes known to him the path of life? The Lord does. In God's presence, not in the world, there is what? How much joy? Fullness of joy. And at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is, and it should be, multitudes of times more thrilling to gather with God's people in His presence and worship Him than it is to carouse on a Friday night in Carson Street. This is better because we come before our God. So we have to refuse to belong. But then we endure persecution. 
the constant, come along, do this with us, come out on Friday, carouse, get drunk. Over time, as we continue to reject that, now it becomes about, not about inviting us to be with our friends, but about them cursing us. Notice what he says in verse 4, and they malign you. The word there used for malign is the word blasphemy, blasphemeo. They disparage our character. I mean, think about this. The fact that a believer would not be involved in the wickedness of this world, the world looks at that, and from their perspective, they say that we are wicked because we don't go along with them. And so we need to endure this persecution. They'll treat us harshly. They'll malign us. Now, what happens when someone disparages your character? Do you like that? And it can bring us to a point where we want to lash out at them. But notice what Peter reminds us of, something that he's already reminded us of us before, and he's reminding us of it again, and it's mentioned throughout Scripture, and it's, I think it's a theme that keeps coming up because I think we need to get it into our thick skulls. They will give an account to God for what they do. They'll give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We have to leave it to God's justice. Peter calls us to follow Christ's example. Arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Christ suffered in the flesh. That suffering came about through wickedness persecuting Him. So we have to think the same way. Look, from, from a temporary perspective... Life would seemingly be easier if we just gave up. We wouldn't have to suffer in this world. People would accept us. We could walk into the bar on Friday and it'd be like, cheers, oh, there's Norm, hey! Is Christ worthy of your suffering? He is infinitely better. And so when we are maligned, we must leave it to God's justice. So we reject these fleshly desires. We refuse worldly acceptance. And then finally, we respond to all this with gospel proclamation. Peter ends by talking about that this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now, this passage has been abused much like what we looked at last week has been abused to say, like, is there some sort of weird way in which the gospel is proclaimed to people who have already passed on? And there's, there's two different ways that this can be taken, but either one, I think, excludes the idea that people who are dead are receiving the gospel. It could refer either to those who are now dead, but once heard the gospel, and I actually think that that, that view is supported in what we're going to see in the rest of the passage, or it could refer to the fact of the deadness of man's sin. And so, from one perspective, we have to recognize that we are called to proclaim the gospel with compassion. Because it is this world's only hope. 
And so these people who are maligning us, you have to recognize they're just doing what they know. They're not the enemy. Sin and the devil is the enemy. And that if we have that perspective about the maligning that we face and the persecution that we face, it will go a long way to us saying, well, I'll just leave this in God's justice and then I will proclaim the gospel to those people who count me strange and malign me for the sake of Christ. So that they would, after their death, as they have been judged in the flesh the way that men are, that those who turn to the gospel, that they would live the way God does. Think of Paul's statement in Romans 9. Paul has been persecuted by his own people, by Israelites. And notice what he says. This is... His truth in Christ. He's not lying. His conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. And and, and the idea here is he's going to say something so unimaginable that people are going to immediately object to it. What is Paul's heart? I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And then he goes on to talk about how that unceasing anguish is for those who are of Israel the very people who are seeking to kill him. He has anguish in his heart because they turn away from the gospel. Let me ask you, do you have anguish in your heart for the lost? And not just the lost in a general sense, or do you have anguish in your heart for the people who mistreat you, who malign you, So we must be driven by compassion, but we are also driven by hope. And here's the glorious hope of the gospel. That even those who have died, even though they're judged in the way, judged in the flesh the way men are, that is not the last story for those who have accepted Christ. Death is not the end. Because those who die in the flesh the way men do, those who have turned to Christ through the gospel, they live like God does through the Spirit that is in them. What a glorious hope. This is a great hope for the believers at Peter's time. They had... They had friends and family members that were dying for the sake of the gospel. And Peter points out, says, listen, they've turned to the gospel. There's hope that even though they've died in their flesh, they live in the Spirit as God does. So, as Paul says in Romans 7, I'm a wretched man. He's talking here about struggling with sin as we struggle with sin we're all wretched men we need deliverance who will deliver us thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord let's pray Father we thank you for your word and the hope we have in it 
Now, Father, as we take time to remember what you've done for us on Calvary, may it be a a pointer to us to turn away, to turn away from that which we are dead to in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. We're going to observe the Lord's table at this time, and as we do, we take up an offering for our benevolent fund. Benevolent fund helps those with uh, demonstrable needs in our uh, congregation, so if we can have the ushers come, uh, we'll take up this offering at this time. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the offering. Father, thank you, Father, for such a wonderful salvation in Christ. Father, bless this offering. Use its funds to help those in need here. We pray this in Christ.